0: listeners all, dear listeners all of the Madam's cast, welcome to yet another exciting and formidably interesting uh episode. This month I'm chatting to Tim Parton. No, not the misunderstood and distant cousin of Dolly, the famous country singer, although maybe he is, we'll find out in a minute, but uh, a farmer who is, uh, you know, from the outside anyway, appears to be marrying together the ancient and the modern and coming up with, you know, what seems to me some incredibly sensible farming practices or certainly whether he's coming up with them himself or not, he's certainly um, uh, certainly doing a good job of getting them out there and telling everyone about them. Um, so before I completely ruin it and tell everyone the wrong thing about who uh, Tim is, I- I'm really excited about this because I've been trying to get more farmers on. And um, so here we are, we have, we have Tim Parton on the show. He's a farmer. Uh, Tim, are you there?
1: i'm here evening everybody ah oh,
0: good evening um and and whereabouts in the country are you tim i detect a certain
1: twang to your accent i i'm just in south staffordshire so not too far from wolverhampton which is probably the twang you're hearing tim it's a very very beautiful
0: sounding twang to me um so i'm pleased to hear that and uh, have you had enough rain in staffordshire now
1: oh we've had enough we, we started off with that really dry april where crops were really stressed and uh, now we've gone from one extreme to the other and we've had a very very wet may so we're uh, just one extreme to the other
0: <laughs> isn't it just going a bit more that way but
1: oh, just,
0: yeah I'm, i think i'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here tim because i'm so excited to talk to you um i would like you uh without you know, necessarily going back as far as the cradle or the twinkle in your father's eye to give me a little potted history of Tim Parton and what has led you to being the farmer that you are and what has led you to hope to be the farmer you'd like to become. Is that an open enough brief for you to give us an answer That's
1: a very open question, Tim. Um, I, I always wanted to farm. My father was a farmer and I always wanted to farm. Um, and so I, I always knew what I wanted to do and become. Um, and I'd always had a, an interest in soil right from an early age. And soil soil gives us everything. It gives us food. It gives us clean water. It gives us air. Everything comes from the soil and everything goes back to the soil. Um, it, soil is just such um, an alive entity that it's been overlooked for the past century. And we've done our damnedest to poison it that it's time to to let that soil heal and and sort of bring us back in line with with nature as one. And that interest really has really intensified over the last six years. It started probably 15 years ago, but the last six years, I've gone more and more down the health of soil and I've gone more down the biological route. So I use a lot of biology now instead of using chemicals. And so I replace fungicides with biology. Um, I don't use insecticides, haven't done for six years. Um, the whole farm is now alive and, and a living entity, and the whole ecosystem is working, and so we're just abundant with nature. We've got abundant skylarks, we've got kestrels, barn owls, green finches, linets, everything has come back to the farm, and it's just a joy to be a farmer now.
0: Oh, that sounds well, it sounds like a paradise. So what sort of farming are you doing? Are you doing arable? Are you mixed? Have you got dairy? What what are you up to?
1: We're we're just arable. Um I do a lot of I do grass for haylage for horses, which is a fantastic to have in the rotation because nothing sequesters carbon as well as grass and improves soil structure. So I can rope that layer around the farm on a four or five year rotation. Um and that just brings that carbon back into everything's carbon everything that evolves around carbon in, in this world in which we live. So it's just so important for me to be putting so much back into the soil as I can. Yeah. I'm, I'm
0: amazed to hear, well, amazed and delighted, I have to say to hear uh, an arable farmer talking about not using fungicides. We hear a huge amount about pesticides. We hear a huge amount uh, about that, you know, um, uh, and interestingly up here in, in, Northeast Scotland, I see quite a lot of rapeseed growing, which everyone told me three years ago was going to be impossible to grow once we got rid of the seed dressing with the neonicotins in it. So you you might be able to update me on that. But what I'm really honing in on here is that you said no fungicides. Now, people growing cereal crops are usually pretty keen on fungicides. Now, I'm not because I think if you spray a fungicide anywhere near a soil, you're damaging that soil's ability to regenerate, cling together, fight erosion, retain moisture, and all of that stuff, because mushrooms are kind of one of my things, right? Fungus is something that I'm a bit of a nerd about. So I'm really excited for you to tell me how you're managing, well, why they, why lots of arable farmers use a lot of fungicide, and how you're managing to get around that problem. That sounds really
1: interesting to me. God, that's a long story, Tim. It really starts from the, the Second World War, where we'd got all those ammunition factories that were making nitrogen for bombs, basically. And so yeah. after the war, they they sort of wondered what they were going to do, I think. And they, that's when we really started to apply nitrogen to our crops. And in doing that, people had good yields and good responses. And so they put a bit more on and it's it's yeah. always that more on effect, and it is the more on, in my mind, that creates all the problems. And we, we were asked as farmers post World War Two to produce lots of cheap food, and and farmers have done a really good job and should be should be commended really because they were, they've done what they were asked to to do. They've achieved it, but now is the time when we've got to start and, and and address the balance because in putting all that nitrogen on, one we've burnt all that carbon out of our soil, but two because that. You're having so much nitrates going into the plant. The plant is taking in so much more water, and then you're getting weak cells, and so you're just asking for disease to come into that plant because it you've burst it. It's grown at such a strength and verocity that that cell wall is so weak, it's just open to pathogen attack. So what I try to do is is replace the fungicides. It's a, it's a systems approach and. You can't really take any part of my jigsaw puzzle, as I call it, and go off and just take one piece and expect the same results. Mine is a whole systems approach. So at drilling, when that seed goes in, I won't use a seed dressing because again, I don't want that barrier between that seed and connecting to fungi in the soil. Because once we start to connect to that fungi, that's when all the nutrition really gets into that plant. And that plant is more balanced to cope with, with the environment in which we're trying to grow it
0: yeah so that's a mycorrhizal fungal relationship between the nutrients in the soil and the plant itself rather than what lots of people will be thinking well hang on a minute how does it connect up to to fungus well that that that's a whole branch of of um of uh, mycology that you're talking about It is. that's interesting
1: it is And, and the thing because i don't disturb the soil so i direct drill so i don't put any any real deep cultivation equipment in the soil at all because Fungi are so delicate, they really don't like disturbance. And I always class it, it's like somebody put it in a ball and train through your house and just as you sort of recover and start to put a few bricks down, somebody puts a ball and chain through again and that's what ploughing is doing to the soil. So that fungi is never going to be there. But with not disturbing the soil, I'm now getting a good fungi to bacteria ratio within the soil. I'm about 1.6 to 1. And by doing that, I get the symbiosis effects between that fungi and the plant's roots. So if the plant wants some potash, for for example, the the plant will release exudates, which are in the shape of of carbohydrates and sugars, fatty acids, whatever the the, the fungi is requiring. But in return, that fungi will release some potassium for the plant or release some phosphorus (laughs) And that two-way synergism starts to evolve and they both depend on each other. And that's where we've gone wrong in the past by interfering and putting synthetic fertiliser on. All of a sudden the plant says, well, I've got my nitrogen, I've got my phosphorus, I don't need you. And the plant becomes a drug addict, the soil becomes a drug addict because it's it's not functioning properly. And, and we, we've just made a complete mess of that whole situation and created loads of problems, which is where... We start to need fungicides to protect it from the pathogen attack
0: oh that that's amazing isn't it you've just gone around in a brilliant little circle there for us and and that's that's really fascinating so uh, most uh, most uh, cereal growing farmers would use a fungicide to protect them against uh plants getting ill and actually they're getting ill because they're not in contact with the fungus in the first place
1: that's correct and the other the other problem is when you've got that it's the weak salt wall that the nitrogen creates and then the say pathogens will come in but it's also an unhealthy soil so an unhealthy soil is going to have more baddies than goodies because quite often they'll be anaerobic so you've got the the, the more anaerobic fungi going on in the soil which is creating these problems and it but if if i if i I'm always trying to keep the plant balanced nutrition wise so i do a lot of sap testing and leaf matter testing just to make sure that plant is balanced of all the elements, because when we're in these extremes of weather, you still have problems even working with biology. If it's very dry, it can't function properly. If it's very wet, it's it's starting to go a bit more anaerobic. It can't function quite the same. So that's when I'll step in and do a foliar treatment rather than a soil treatment. And folias are so much more efficient. They're not polluting our waterways and they're straight onto the plant. So they can be seven to 15 times more efficient than doing a soil applied application.
0: Okay, so this is where we intervene with some modern chemistry magic, but it goes directly onto the plant rather than into the soil habitat.
1: Yeah, exactly. And this year I'm I'm doing quite a few trials where I'm actually feeding everything the plant needs that it can't get from the soil through the leaf. And then in doing that, while I'm reducing my carbon footprint because I'm not buying all this synthetic fertilizer, which has got a real high carbon footprint. Oh
0: yes, massive, massive.
1: But the other thing is i'm not getting the leaching because most of the nitrogen fertilizers we only use 40 to 60 percent maximum the rest is going in our waterways polluting our water which is then ending up in our oceans and we're getting all these dead zones
0: well, we get so much
1: oxygen from from the oceans and there we are poisoning it and it's just got to stop there isn't the need we've got the knowledge now that we can farm in a more regenerative way, I'm not going to use the word sustainable because sustainable is just stopping where we are. Yeah. I want to regenerate and just get better and better and better.
0: Wow, what a mission! Uh, I'm delighted to hear it. I mean, a lot of the fertility around here. I've, I've moved to Murray. It's a beautiful um, county in the northeast of Scotland. They grow an awful lot of barley um, for the uh, for the whiskey industry up here, uh, and that's a fine thing to be doing <laughs> but it, I've noticed that the soil here is very very uh, sandy and then that's exacerbated I think by continuous um, use for cereal crops and there's no mycorrhizals in it and they're going around putting nitrogen on it um, all the old MPK fertilizer spinning out the back of the tractor there and the next day it's windy and I just watch all the soil blow off the top of the field <laughs> across the road and out to sea and I think well hope yeah. your nitrogen fertilizer hasn't blown off with that.
1: Well, it's, it's such a finite resource. We can't just go and make some more. I mean, I can, I, you know, to, to make it from rock, it takes a thousand years to make an inch of soil. We're not obviously making it from rock and I can make it quicker now because I grow a lot of cover crops. And the cover crops, I can, I can do lots of different things with the cover crops. I can introduce different biology because their exudates will be different. Yeah. I can improve the fertility in the soil by growing legumes, which are going to fix nitrogen for me which is what I do. I grow a lot of malting barley for, for, for lager beer. And what I do, I grow a legume cover crop before that, that spring barley. Uh-huh. So as I've already fixed a fair amount of nitrogen in the soil. And then taking it forward, I try and feed through the leaf. So it's, it's a sort of a net zero crop of barley that's going in for, for beer making. And I, I just see this is the way everybody, we're all going to be. We've got to take care of the planet and start and our carbon and look at what we're actually doing. Brilliant,
0: brilliant. Right, before we dive into the three things that you'd like to change about the world of food, which is the core sort of central ethos of the Madam's Cast, um, and these can be fairly helicopter points or quite narrow ones, uh, whatever view you want to bring to them, that's fine. Um, I've got a couple of things. I've been reading a few of your tweets in preparation for this uh, and, um, you know, for the last few weeks as well. But I've got a question because you put up a really interesting uh, post about some uh, mixed milling wheat that you were growing. And in some of the responses, there was obviously some questions about various things, which was all in farmer jargon that I couldn't understand. Now, one of them was about insects proofing the crops. And this was to do with something called bricks being passed a plus or minus 14. What is bricks and why is 14 so important? And how on earth do you stop insects from eating plants?
1: Bricks is, is a measurement using a refractometer that, that wine brewers would use and things like that. So what I do when I'm going to the crop to do a bricks test, I'll I'll take a garlic crusher or, or something that I can actually get the, the sap juice out of the plant. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just put a few drops on my refractometer and, and point it towards the sky. It really wants to be done sort of, I like to do it at four o'clock in the afternoon, but for mid-afternoon onward, four o'clock is the time for me because at four o'clock time is when the plant's going to start and put all those sugars that it's photosynthesized throughout the day. it's going to put them down into the roots and go out as exudates. exudates. So I can, by by doing that, I can make sure the plant is functioning properly. Mm-hmm. Now, if I've got a lot of nitrogen or too much nitrogen in that plant, it won't be photosynthesizing and I'll have a bricks. They can be down as low as six, but because I'm, I'm in tune with the plant and I'm testing and keeping that nitrogen at a level where the plant can actually use it and, and, and make amino acids and turn them into proteins by having the correct nutrition there to do that, I can monitor the bricks reading. And if it's above 14, I'm not going to get a disease attack and I'm not going to get a pest attack because the plant is balanced. So it's not going to be attractive to aphids and the, it's not going to be attracted to the pathogens. The, the plant is working as it should.
0: This is amazing. So this is a concept that I think has been, brought to life by various people uh, this understanding that um, if you grow strong plants that are well balanced they'll survive because they're not targeted. I think people think healthy plants are something that you've created and that it's just because it's a healthy plant that's doing so well but actually healthy plants that are in balance are not attractive to disease or predators because of course disease and insect attacks are they're, their they're mother nature's way of of sorting out the the weaklings, getting rid of them and getting the nitrogen cycled again and all the other nutrients broken down and back into the soil. Right?
1: Exactly right, Tim. And that's just how it is. The plant immune system is no different to our own immune system. And that's why food is so important, but it all comes from the soil. And if we've got the nutrition right in ourselves, we're healthy. We're not going to get ill in my mind. There's so much we can do nutrition wise to ourselves. And the plant is exactly the same. And that's where my interest really comes. My wife is really big into into human nutrition. And I had a light bulb moment probably, I don't know, eight, ten years ago. And I thought, well, this is exactly the same as plants. And it was so exciting because I realized I could actually start and do what I wanted to do and move away from synthetic inputs and produce some healthy food.
0: Uh, Brilliant. Right. Okay. Well, on that theme, I just want one more little bit of uh, jargon clearing up. Okay. So um, soil applied N is nitrogen. Right. I've got that. Yep.
1: what is PGR? It's a, a perennial growth regulator. So it's right. a growth regulator to stop the plant getting too tall because you've put nitrogen on and the plant's zooming up and it's weak cell. So it, because you've made the cell wall so weak, the plant isn't going to be able to stand up potentially on its own. So you put a PGR on to slow the plant down again huh. in order to so it's not too top heavy. Whereas what I do in my way of farming, I put diatomaceous earth down and drilling which the plant then converts into monosilicic acid, which goes into the plant's silica, and it makes those cell walls very strong. And that's where I start to do my disease prevention. It is right at the very start of drilling. And then I'll put potassium silicate on later on in the plant's life, just to keep topping that that silica up in the monosilic acid. So I've always got that armor there.
0: Amazing. And so do you end up with longer straw than other people then?
1: No, probably a bit shorter because I haven't got that that massive growth. When people tend to throw too much nitrogen on in one go and then they throw the plant totally out of balance, which means it gets short of potassium. It'll get short sulfur and all of a sudden you've created a problem because it's just sucking so much nitrogen in. It can't cope with it. Yeah. It goes into growth, but it just makes everything so weak. And then as you said, Tim, it, nature knows that plant is vulnerable and it'll take out the weaklings. It's just. Survival of the fittest. then.
0: Now, a very long time ago, my second ever sous chef that I worked with in London was an Italian guy called Luigi. And he, he and I had an, a dynamic relationship, I should probably say. Um, but he had some little nuggets of wisdom. Um, he had quite a lot of them, but one of them that's always stuck in my mind is he caught me. Uh, I was doing something naughty. I don't know what I was doing. I was cheating at something. I, I wasn't kneading bread properly or I was doing something, you know, a bit short-gutty because we were in yeah. trouble, and he stopped me and he said, Tim, when you cut corners, all you do is create more corners. now oh, I
1: like that one. Yeah, so yeah, now,
0: now it's very trite, okay, it's a very male sort of thing to say, right, but it absolutely stopped me in my tracks and it's changed the way that I thought about initially about working with food. Then more broadly uh, about the environments of who comes from and how that's how that's managed. So uh, that's a, that's very much a case of having to apply something to fix a problem you've created yourself, and that's one of those corner-cutting situations. Luigi would not approve.
1: I, I totally agree, and it's what fungicides do. Really, we're cutting the corner, and we've created a problem, and we're just putting a sticky plaster back on the problem instead of looking at the root cause. And that's the same with all things. And because we we say we have degraded our soil so much, and it's nobody's fault. I'm not trying to point point the finger at anybody. It's just the time has now come. We've got the knowledge and the information to to farm in a far more environmentally friendly way and still produce enough food for this growing population that we've got.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. Well, we could start by not chucking a third of it away, but anyway. um, Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> Tim, I can tell that you and I could put the nation to sleep uh, with, <laughs> with a long and involved conversation around the ethics of modern um, nutrition in farming. But um, let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's, let's dive into the main part of the show, Tim. And you can tell me um, uh, one at a time what the three things you'd like to change about your world of food. So we, we step through into an alternative reality that's so malleable that you can change it at the flick of a switch um, so what what would be Tim your first thing you'd like to change about the world of food
1: I'd, I'd like to stop soil destruction that is my real first thing and by by stopping all the, all this abuse of soil um with mechanical means and sometimes it's necessary I'm not sort of like condemning everybody but a lot of the time it's not necessary and we can farm in a way without moving it and then by getting that fungal interaction, we're just going to get more nutrient-dense food. You know, I think we're all aware how much more nutritious our food was a hundred years ago to what it is now. And it's, in my mind, it's all this, this destruction we've done to soil in stopping this, this fungal interaction within the plant. So we're getting the, the, the end, end of mycorrhizal fungi going in there and supplying nutrition that that plant wouldn't get without that fungal interaction. And by having that more nutrient dense food, we're just going to be healthier people. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's all about. It's, we've become so sick with the way we've poisoned our land, which is giving us this calorie empty food. It, it's, it's just empty calories all the time that we're having because it's just full of nitrogen and it's, it's, it's time to stop, you know, it's time for people to, to demand this nutrient dense food because it's going to heal ourselves and, you know, our, our own well-being is going to be so much better mentally and physically that would be the major one I'd change straight away
0: Yeah I think it's interesting because actually in the last five years the boom in foraging, in wild food gathering is massive and that speaks to me of an underlying wisdom of the body if you like people are drawn to that because something somewhere inside them is saying, you've got to go and get something else. <laughs> you know, I know it's a nice, enjoyable, immersive experience to go out into the wild and pick a nettle or a wild garlic and that in and of itself is healthy for you, but they very often come from soils that are not managed in you know, the modern sense managed by the nature or wild managed soil if you like and I I just I can't help but think that on some level we're just drawn towards that
1: but I totally agree and I I think the other thing it's what I try to do on the farm I have as much diverse rotation as I can and as many different species in my cover crop so a a cover crop will go in when we've had a sort of a cash crop and then I'll put a cover crop in to, to keep that soil covered over the winter because you never want soil that's not working and you never want a bare soil because that's just, you know, you're asking for erosion and the soil isn't working. And by having this diverse cover crop mix, I'm getting all that diverse exudates mix going into the soil. So I'm just stirring up more and more different biology, which is which is what we've been missing because all these plants do different things for the soil. And, and that's, that diversity we've just monocropped for so long that it's just... Bored of it it's like us eating the same meal day yeah. in day out
0: yeah yeah and it's um erosion that you bring up there is very interesting because having moved obviously to northeast scotland where we've got lots of grain farming we've actually come from east devon where there's a lot of dairy production and dairy is an industry that obviously oh there's a there's a, there's a bonging clock. That's exciting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's probably the uh, people falling asleep alarm. Tim, move on. No. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So very briefly, there's a lot, uh, there's been a lot of intensification in dairy production because the poor old dairy farms have been trying to keep up with demands of the market. And that's been driven obviously from governmental and policy level for a long time, but that has resulted in the growth of way too much maize for feed that then isn't ripe until quite late in the season, then it's whole cropped. And then you've got fields with maize stubble on the side of steep hills in a high rainfall area that are un- they're too wet to get in and plow, they're too wet to get in and drill. And they just sit there and soil pours off a field all winter, you know? Yeah. Um, and you just think, why have we forced these people into a situation because well, you're not telling me the people that have been farming that land for hundreds of years can't see that happening. They know full well what's going on. They do their best to manage it, uh, but they're forced into a situation where that's got what they've got to do. Because to be commercial, they've got to have 300 cows on a farm that grass-wise can probably only support 50.
1: It is. Um, th- th- there's loads of things I'll come back on there, Tim. I mean, one. There's, there's a lot of people now starting to do inter-row cropping in between the maize. So when the maize taken off, you've actually got a grass strip there with some clover, which they don't do the damage. I mean, it's not mainstream yet, but it's starting to get there. So people are becoming aware. From when I sort of started on my journey ten years ago, say everybody wasn't interested in soil at all. I'd, I'd stand up at meetings and people thought I'd be a bit wacky. They probably still be. <laughs> Um but <laughs> now I know that feeling. You know, <laughs> Uh, soil has become mainstream, so I love it when you see it in the magazines that people are taking an interest in their soil. And so people are starting to intercrop in between the maize to stop that erosion. So it's not mainstream yet, but it's there. But the, the main thing with, with dairy farmers is they need to start and have more of a herbal lay and start to get that variety into the cows again and come away from urea because. If you're feeding all the urea to the cows, you're just getting empty calories. There's a good friend of mine called David Liversley, and he's a dairy consultant. And he's promoting that way of farming and having fantastic results. He turns farms around. They, the cows, their coats will shine. They don't need anywhere near as much forage as they did because they're not having empty calories. They're having high-calorific, nutrient-dense food. And they don't need to graze all day because they can fulfill their requirement quite quickly when it's got everything they need there. And, and that's that's how we've got to be to keep everything healthy including ourselves
0: amazing amazing what a grown-up and constructive answer um because there's a bit of bashing that goes on I mean I've been kicking around in this scene for a while now long enough to remember when you used to say things like organic and people would sort of start searching you in case you had something illegal on you um and, and it's you know that conversation has grown up and it's moved a very long way but I don't like this sort of them and us attitude between what's become a sort of partisan situation between organic and traditional systems. Why a traditional system is called a traditional system when it's only been kicking around for 80 years is beyond me, but that's the names that they've got. And I really like that, that, that sort of, okay, well, it's not ideal, but how about we fix the problem within the calamity, uh, with, within the pressures of the market and in sow this so that it's better. See, that's just a really smart idea.
1: Yeah, and it, it's, you're dead right. It's so important that we all work together. Um, I've been accused of attacking fellow farmers, and I'm never attacking. All I'm trying to do is help and encourage them on this journey because it's so important that we start to look after this planet. There is no planet B. This is it. And we've got to look after and repair the damage that we've done. And it's for everything involved on the planet, and everything is just as important as the other, and that's something we've got to respect as human beings.
0: Yeah. I'm with you, totally with you on that, totally with you on that. Okay, so stop soil destruction, point number one. I think we've talked around and about that quite nicely. I mean, obviously a subject we could spend all night talking about, but, I, you know, I think we've got a good broad overview uh, of what's going on there. That's great. Um, you're not getting any argument from me. I'm I constantly reminding myself to try and be more journalistic and try and argue with you. So maybe I'll try and argue <laughs> with you on point two. We'll see, we'll see how we go. So, um Tim, what is point two? What would you like to change in
1: your sense? Point two point? Is, is another real passion of mine. Is I just don't see why people have got to eat straw eat strawberries in the middle of winter or, or eat raspberries or eat green beans in the middle of winter. And we're importing them from, from third world countries quite often and we're robbing their water. The companies going in there will, will say that, oh, we're going to create jobs, but they don't. They take their own people there. And that country is just getting worse and worse because there isn't enough water to go around. And those people are starving because of that greed in the West to just eat what they want, when they want. And people have got to respect food. Um, food is such a valuable commodity, and we live in such a throwaway society mm. that it just annoys me so much that there's so much waste and, and the greed of bringing, importing stuff halfway around the world and burning carbon to get it here. Why can't we just eat seasonal and look forward to those strawberries right ripe, ripening in the garden and that first pick? Because there's nothing to touch that taste, the same as the first tomato that you get out the greenhouse. I'm, I am a keen gardener as well as you're probably chicken up. <laughs> I,
0: I could tell. I could tell.
1: It's it's just so important to me that I don't see as we've got the right just to, to 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 have what we want when we want. It's it's what's happened to seasonal food and eating what's within your own country, rather than just demanding everything and and burning all this carbon in order to get it and making people suffer in order to get it. it, I I can never get my head around it, Tim.
0: Well, quite frankly, if you ask me to eat a strawberry in December, I mean, that's making me suffer. Uh, They're not enjoyable. They don't taste nice. They're generally quite woody. just don't do it they're called summer fruits for a reason uh hang on though because i've got to argue against you i thought you know just for the sake of a bit of <laughs> a bit of <laughs> professional journalism i'll try and crowbar a bit in um okay well i'm going to give you an example here because i've got a seasonal kryptonite all right i i eat pretty seasonally okay uh i'm perhaps less shall we say picky about that than i was 10 years ago but 10 years ago i was pretty fundamentalist about it all. And I've become a little bit softened uh, in my old age, I guess, but I have a seasonal kryptonite and that's not strawberries, which is a very common one. it's not green beans, which is a very common one because actually strawberries, if you want them out of season, have jam, strawberry jam, that's the whole point of it. It's really nice. Um, And, uh, you know, green beans, there's a brilliant answer to that problem. Frozen green beans, I mean, frozen vegetables are, the answer to nine tenths of the problems with the vegetable importing aisle as far as I'm concerned. If you use frozen frozen green beans, frozen broccoli, okay, it's not the same as having fresh but it's very fresh when it's frozen. It's much cheaper, it's easier to store and it doesn't have the huge issues of production that we've just touched on. However, I have a seasonal kryptonite and that is aubergines. Now why? You tell me why I can't eat an aubergine Uh, for 12 months of the year, if I want to. I mean, that's my choice, isn't it?
1: It is your choice, but I I still maintain it's a selfish choice because the countries where we're we're taking this food from, um, I mean, uh, avocados are a classic example, aren't they? It almost becomes like a a drug war. They become so valuable uh, and people die for it. And I just don't see as we've got that right. Um, I love over jeans myself. I still don't see as we've got that right just to have what we want when we want and people suffer from our choices. It just, to me, it's not ethical and it's not right. Um, I've got three freezers. I freeze all my veg, just as you said, Tim, to, to last me throughout the winter. We just finished our last um, tomatoes on Sunday in a, in a pasta dish and my tomato plants are growing again and it's just planning for what you want um, and everybody can do their bit. And I know everybody can't have a garden, but Everybody can do their bit, in my opinion, and we just need to pull together.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, to be honest, I think a lot of people that buy that stuff, and I'm massively generalising, I mean, I don't know what everybody thinks. I haven't canvassed their opinion. And actually, if you tried that in the supermarket, everyone would think you're a bit weird. You'd probably end up getting thrown out. But it um, <laughs> wouldn't be the first time I've been thrown out of the supermarket. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, I just sort of wonder if actually people are choosing that or they're just having it because it's there.
1: I think it's because it's there i don't think people realize that the bigger story of what goes on it's the same the damage that our fishing industry does around the world you know it's such a corrupt system that it's damaging it all those ecosystems that we can't just put back and it's got to stop you know to me the population can't keep growing at some point we've got to restrict ourselves or, or mother nature will do it for us um and it you know we can't just keep growing and growing we're almost like a disease on the planet in my mind and it's, it's we've just got to be curtailed uh, you know you can't just keep on take 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 we're going deeper and deeper for water in countries Far, the aquifers are getting lower and lower because we're just using more and more and more and it, it, it can't carry on in my mind
0: no no okay okay well good points um very very well made i mean i for me because I uh, I like to try and see the solutions to problems. And actually at the moment, part of the problem is that you haven't really got a choice because if you walk into the supermarket, let's say that's the only place you can go shopping and you want fresh green vegetables, which we're all told we should eat, right? We need them, they're an important part of our diet. Um, You can't necessarily buy kale, but there is green beans from Kenya and there is asparagus from Mexico. And in your head, you've got this, health thing going, you need to eat green vegetables, go and get them. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, we need to make more of an effort to get locally grown winter green crops into the shop. And I don't mean pre-chopped, washed bags of dry, knackered kale that's lost all of its sugar because it's been chopped up and washed in a factory and put in a bag in unnecessary plastic. I mean, beautiful heads of nero, lovely, great bags of, you know, Uh, red Russian kale, all this sort of vibrant, lovely stuff that can be grown in our hemisphere, locally, in our climate, very sustainably, that is so much nicer to eat.
1: Totally agree. Totally agree. And it is a mindset change. Um, And I think we've got to demand it as the buying public. Supermarkets are only interested in making money, in my opinion, Mm. and they just throw in there. They're not that ethical, they pretend to be but they're not that ethical. It's still profit that they're really interested in. And kale, as you touched on there, Tim, I mean, I love to cook, you know, I, 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 I'd love to cook. And to have kale crisps, you know, just whack them in the oven for a few minutes, crisp it up. It's, it's a far healthier snack and it's delicious. And that's the point I'm making. We've got so much we can grow without robbing another country. And that, that's just my, you know, that's my passion. Yeah,
0: man. Well, no, it's, it's great to hear you talk so passionately about it. Um, Brilliant. Okay. Well, I'm very happy to live in a world with greater seasonality of produce. That's. (laughs) I tried to be resistant there with my little aubergine fetish, but I failed miserably because fundamentally. (laughs) It just
1: gives you something to look forward to, doesn't it? And you know what it's like when you go and pick that first strawberry of the the year in the garden. It's a special moment. Yeah. The same with the first tomato. If you haven't got that luxury of looking forward to picking that first fruit and harvesting all the work you've done to, to make sure that plant is, is perfectly nourished to give you nourishment you're missing the point of life in my mind because that's what life's all about is sharing food and, and enjoying the taste and the hard work that you've put in it's the same, I, I love driving our combine because that's just bringing in the harvest and seeing all the work that I've put in and, and that, that is the reward of the year to me yeah.
0: Mm. Very interesting, very interesting and, and yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you definitely enjoy your first tomato of the year an awful lot more when you've been waiting for it <laughs> for a long yeah. time and, yeah. and, and, and you know, you can now get some very, very good um, quality in terms of flavour tomatoes most of the year round if you shop hard but there's still nothing quite like a locally grown tomato that's just bang on season, fresh from someone's polytunnel or garden, as you say. Right, okay, okay, okay. Number two's um, done. We've nailed that one. Oh, I can't believe there could be possibly anything left about the world of food that you still want to change, Tim Barton, but let me, let me hear your number three wish.
1: Number three is, is one that you touched on earlier, really, Tim, and it, it's waste, um, and I just think people waste too much food just just, i had a guy come who buys straw off me and he was telling me about his in-laws when he goes there to christmas day and how appalled he was that they'd they'd have this great big massive christmas lunch and then once they'd finished everything went in the bin and they brought out all new food for for, for the for the evening meal and when i have a cold you know turkey we'll be eating that for weeks after in curries and everything else and just using every single bit and I just think people have lost that respect for food and how much work goes in to producing that food that's got to their table. Um, and I think it, I wish people would, you know, look at the for the quality and eat less because we don't need that much to sustain us. And if we have a quality product, it's worth every penny. You know, you don't need to eat the best beef every day of the week, but if you can eat beef once a week and it's a grass-fed, totally nutritious beef that that to me is going to nourish your body and you're just moving your whole health forwards your whole body forwards
0: oh wow well, yeah uh I, I remember this one actually because i remember at college uh when i was at catering college um, and they did a very good job of trying to you know corral a bunch of nerdy well 17 year olds you know i mean let us <laughs> i don't want to bash them they, they were very good in lots of ways but we were talk about waste purely and simply, no, we were talk about waste in two ways. The chefs in the kitchens were very grumpy about waste um, and they just were constantly on at you to make sure you didn't waste anything, but really it only came up as a subject at college when we were doing our business section of the course. And it came, you know, and and for years after that in professional kitchens, it was always like, well, you must record the wastage and keep it to a minimum because that's money you're throwing away. And I always thought, it's not money you're throwing away. I mean, it, you can represent it as a cost of money, if you like, that's fine. But you, that's food you're throwing away. That's, you know, I was brought up in a waste-not-want-not household, you know, um, and I, I just find it staggering how far we've gone down that road. And that example that you gave me with your friend visiting um, some family at Christmas and being horrified, well, I can tell you that is, you know, that's projected onto people, that's marketed at people that you must have this for lunch, you must have this for your buffet, for your party, you must have this for the next thing. Well, of course you've bought way too much food I mean, and these days, the shops at Christmas, they're shut for what? Maybe 12 hours. (laughs) I mean, and you see people coming out of the shops with trolleys and you think, oh, they've got 400 people coming for lunch tomorrow. Look at that. (laughs) Uh, The mind boggles. And when you read, there's a brilliant book by a guy called Tristram Stewart on waste and it's called Um, you've probably read it, it's called Waste Uncovering the Global Food Scandal and it's probably getting on for a decade old now. And the figures in there are horrendous. You know, something like 30% of food produced globally is wasted. In the US that goes to 50% of food produced wasted. No, it's higher than that. 50% of food produced and purchased at retail is then wasted. So half the food that actually makes it to the shops is then wasted. It's I ridiculous mind
1: blowing. It is mind blowing because it's it, it's just such a waste of water, waste of nutrients. Everything is just it's just just a waste society when I mean, there's still so many people that are dying of starvation in the world. It, yeah. It's it's yeah. just selfish in my mind. It, it, it's it's a real thing that winds me up that you know we, we just don't give that second thought for anybody, and it's just me, 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 me. Um, and it's just respecting the planet as much as anything else, because we just can't keep sucking everything from the planet and, and not giving anything back. It's, it's just so selfish, so wrong in my mind that we're not humble enough. We just don't care, almost. You know, we've been brought up for this sort of society of get that get that get that and eat that eat that eat that and we've just gone away from that real meaning of food and and what it's all about and the sharing of food but sharing and respecting it of the quality and, and, and respecting how it's been produced and where it's come from and what you're actually eating
0: yeah yeah, I, and, I'm probably you know, getting a bit deep there, Tip.
1: <laughs> it probably were, but do you know what? I think
0: it needs to. I think we need to sort of start shocking a few people and getting a few people to think about it because without a few loud arguments going on, all we get is a few publicity campaigns from Wellington. It is, and that's why I
1: shout on social media and the like because I just want people to know that we can't produce food without using all the synthetic inputs and poor keep poisoning the planet. You know, it's, you touched on the soil erosion, you're seeing where you are now. Well, if you look at all the estuaries around this country, they're all blocked with soil that's come off the fields mm-hmm. and you can't just take it out and put it back, you know, we've got to respect it. And it's the same with all the dead zones in the oceans, you know, all around our coastline, we've got dead zones and that's just from the phosphorus and the nitrogen leaching and running off with the soil off our fields and we've we've got to stop it It, it, there isn't the excuse to do it anymore we we know better now
0: i'm with you well okay i think that the entire listenership of the madams cast um will be on the phone to you tomorrow asking you to run for prime minister (laughs) (laughs) With with a manifesto like that get rid of waste bring back seasonality of produce and stop soil destruction i mean you know that's some serious, uh, some serious problems with the world to tackle. Let's get them dealt with. So thanks very much, Tim. You've changed three things uh, in the world, and it's now a better place to be. So <laughs> let's hope so. Good for you. Good for you. Um, and that brings us nicely to the, the end of the um, the in depth uh, discussional part, I guess, of the of the Madams cast, and um, uh, and nicely into the end bit where you get to choose three things. Uh, you get to choose a book. About food um, that you would sort of have on a desert island if you could only have one. Uh, You're allowed to choose a drink to have while you're perusing said book. And if you'd like to, you can nominate someone uh, to come on the Madam's Cast and and change three things about the world of food. They they can be alive, dead, real, fictitious. Um, They don't have to agree to come on. This is not a a, a sort of fait accompli, as it were. Uh, They don't have to do that. But before we dive into that, Tim, I've been. Um, struck by your messaging on Twitter and that was what prompted me to uh, dig a bit deeper find out a bit more about you and get in touch to get you on here so it only seems right that you tell everybody out there that's listening to this how they can follow you and, and, and anyone else that you think of that they should really look at and say let's, let's start thinking about this soil question a bit more
1: yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter. So my my, my um, code name or whatever, by handle, whatever you want to call it, I'm on parker419 on Twitter. Um, so you, you can sort of get updates of what I'm doing on the farm and, and see the different seasons of what I'm doing and what I'm trying. I'm, I'm always trying loads of different trials because it's the only way I'm going to learn. Um, and because I'm using nutrition, there isn't the money involved in using nutrition. So the big chemical companies aren't going to do the trials that I'm doing because they can't make any money out of it so they're not interested. You know, they don't want me to do this thing because farmers have got to become farmers again and farm for themselves rather than being sold all these chemical inputs that cost a fortune and then they wonder why they're not making any money. And it's got to stop, we've got to start and be farmers, Our, our ancestors were far better farmers in my mind than what we are today because they had to think for themselves that they smelt the soil, they were in touch with the soil, they got soil on their hands. They knew what was happening and they knew how to rectify it. They didn't have massive machines that they could just bully and do what they wanted. Um,
0: well, the joy the joy of what you're saying there is that it's now being echoed um, across the country too. I mean, uh, Patrick Laurie has just written a book uh, called uh, Native uh, and then uh, James Rebax's first book, uh, Shepherd's Life, his second book um, out now, uh, which I think is called English Pastoral. Just finished that. Absolutely brilliant, echoing what you're saying as well. And then you've got people doing all sorts of other things with their land to help provide nature services and aquifer, um, you know, reclamation and carbon sequestration and all of this stuff. And obviously that involves change. And when you involve change, people get angry with each other and argue. And what I like about your Twitter feed is that you are just always constantly gently pushing. Your facts, your side of the story, and just telling it calmly and, and in an in a interesting way. So, thanks very much for, for not letting it break down into a silly shouting match.
1: I try not to, because that's pointless. You know, it's not going to go anywhere, and I'm not out to have a, an argument with anybody, for want of a better word. i just want to let people know that it can be achieved. That's all I'm after. That's all
0: I'm after. fine, a fine, fine, fine ambition. Okay, Tim. So, what's your desert island book then?
1: My desert island book, uh, ironically enough, would be Fernley Whittingstalls because I I I follow a lot of his recipes and because I do like eating game and I do like eating homegrown vegetables and freshly caught fish by myself. That his book fits really nicely with what I like to cook and what I do. So that would be my book of choice. Probably if I had to pick one out of all of them, but what would I enjoy?
0: I missed that sorry which one of all of them would you pick the,
1: the, he's got one. Well, i think it was the family cookbook and yeah. uh, so there's something in there for everybody so that, that one is probably one that gets used an awful lot in our house yes
0: yeah, so my copy is very dog-eared and covered in bolognese sauce at various pages <laughs> just as it should be things like that yeah absolutely absolutely um uh okay well you confessed to me earlier off air that you hadn't um you hadn't looked me up until shortly before you came on which is very um, uh,
1: awesome. Yeah, I felt quite embarrassed when I looked you up and uh, realised the connection.
0: <laughs> so I, I'm just impressed by your natural generosity that you agreed to come on the Madam's cast with no idea who I was. I mean, I that just think that's fantastic. Um, you, were, you were like, right on, I'm just going to tell you what I think. So I'm absolutely delighted that you've chosen The Family Cookbook by Hugh Fernley Whittestall and it's uh, certainly a book that everyone should have in their collection. Um, and what are you going to have to drink?
1: Oh, my, my tipples would be over a nice IPA bitter or a nice Malbec red. And oh, I wouldn't want to choose one over the other because I enjoy them both. <laughs> can I have two?
0: <laughs> well, okay, so beer comes in a four-pack, uh, so you can have two of those, and you're allowed a half bottle of Malbec to wash it down with. I think we can we can cope with that. That's Excellent. Cool. Um, well, they've probably angered previous listeners now. you demanded more than one drink, but you've won. <laughs> so I'll, I'll let you off. Um, okay, Tim, And would you like to nominate someone who may or may not become a future guest on The Madam's Cast?
1: Uh, I'd love to nominate world lead- leaders, Tim, because... It's so important that they start to understand soil and understand food.
0: Yeah, that's but I don't. (laughs) I don't think I've got the um, the profile to drag them in, unfortunately.
1: Well, you never know if you don't try.
0: (laughs) All right, so am I just literally writing world leaders? Have you not got a farming mate who'd be interesting for me to talk to as a backup?
1: Uh, oh, I'll have to think about that one, Tim, and get back to you.
0: All right. Well, look, get back to me via Twitter or something and let me know yeah. if you have a sudden thought. Or oh, what about this David Leslie guy? I've got a... Oh, Leesley.
1: David Liversley. Yeah, I can ask him. He, he could, he'd be interesting to talk to because he's he's like my version, but he's a stockman. So he'd be pretty good, I would think. All right.
0: Okay. Well, I just made a note of his name earlier in my people to research column on my notepad uh, because he sounded very interesting. So maybe I'll... Maybe I'll while I'm on the phone... To um, Joe Biden to see if he'll uh, he'll come on. I'll, um, I'll I might send <laughs> David a, a message. No, Joey me. you'll have
1: to wait because you're, you're having David first. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> fantastic, brilliant. Um, well, look, I, uh, Tim, I've had a great time chatting to you. Um, we've absolutely covered off some fantastic points, and I, I, I've really enjoyed having you on. It's so nice to hear someone being so positive um, for change and actually putting their money where their mouth is, because farming is a very difficult place to make a living. Um, And so stepping away from what the mainstream offers and all those support networks that are there is a very brave thing. And I'm uh, delighted to hear that you're doing it and supporting others to, to try and liberate their farms in a similar way.
1: That's very kind of you to say, Tim, but it is, once you sort of make the jump, farming is a joy again. When I go crop walking, There'll be skylarks jumping everywhere. I have bird the bird ringing group come in the evenings and, and they ring the skylarks and our numbers we're just through the roof now. I think we've got over two hundred on on the farm. We get a lot of woodcock. We get snipe back on the farm. We we've got a lot of bird boxes up around the farm and last year we were about ninety to ninety five percent occupancy, but they were having clutches of eight to ten birds. The great tits and blue tits were and the only reason they're having such fast numbers of fledglings is because we've got so much food here because the whole ecosystem is working and and, and a living entity. And and the reason I'm bringing it all up is because farming is a joy once you make this sort of jump because you are making money because you're not spending the money. But the whole farm is alive and I define anybody that doesn't have a smile on their face when you go for a walk and there's a skylark chirping away in in the skyline there because it's, it's just what life's all about in my mind.
0: Yeah, every morning here we get woken up by the oyster catchers. They do a sort of lap of the house, sounding like an early eighties car alarm, and it's um, it's just an absolute joy. Well, they stopped actually, which I think means that they must be sitting. So I'm I'm excited about that, and uh, um, I, I completely agree. If it's something like that, that doesn't put a smile on your face, then um, yeah, you're a lost cause. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tim Barton, thank you so much for taking part in the Madams cast. Um, stay well keep farming and I'll, I'll enjoy keeping an eye on what you're up to
1: on twitter and elsewhere thank you keep well, well. and you all the best